Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and Embedded is back. And we recently realized it's hard to assess a politician who has virtually no political record. But with Donald Trump, we tried anyway. And we wound up with stories and lessons from the record he does have in business and on TV. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know Gilbert Gottfried, right? The comedian with the crazy, loud voice who... Uh, lately, he's been famous for telling gross, kind of tasteless jokes. At one point, he was the voice of the Aflac duck. There's really two Gilbert Gottfrieds, though. There's that guy, the guy on stage. And then there's the pretty quiet guy who has a wife and two kids and, you know, picks up paper towels on the way home or whatever. And until now, he's been really reluctant to show that second side of him. Actually kind of terrified. It's just like I remember for years after I I do a set, and sometimes I do a great set, and, you know, I get a lot of laughs and everything, and I'd be scared to go up and, you know, try to talk to women in the bar or something because I thought I'll, I'll just wind up killing everything I created up there. It's Bullseye. Coming up, more with comedy great Gilbert Gottfried. He's the subject of a new documentary called Gilbert, and he's putting pretty much all of himself out there. Even the time that a tweet cost him one of his most lucrative jobs. My favorite tweet that somebody sent me when that happened was, Affleck fires Gilbert Gottfried after discovering he's a comedian. Then Maggie Betts joins me on the show. She's a new filmmaker who's worked mostly in documentaries until now. Her debut feature film, Novitiate, is set in the 1960s. It focuses on how nuns dealt with a church that was in upheaval. And I mean, it's never easy to make a movie, especially an independent one. But at least for this one, wardrobe was easy. For, for a period piece based in the 60s, I can't tell you the great joy of having only one costume. <laughs> That's incredible. You know what I mean? And one location that doesn't involve, like, picture cars and other stuff like that. Then the movie that made George Clooney, George Clooney. And it's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Gilbert Gottfried, has a reputation for pushing the boundaries in comedy. When he's on stage, he plays kind of a character squints his eyes, he screams at the top of his lungs, his material kind of hovers between tasteless, dumb, and almost always really, really funny. Yesterday I was having dinner with Charles Manson. <laughs> and in the middle of dinner, he turned to me and said, is it hot in here or am I crazy? I mean, could any human being act like that all the time? No, of course not. In real life, Gilbert is complex. He's quiet. He's got plenty of problems of his own. And for the first time, he's talking about all of that. He's the subject of a new documentary. It's called Gilbert. It was directed by Neil Berkeley, who also directed Beauty is Embarrassing, a documentary about the artist Wayne White. In Gilbert, 
Berkeley tags along with the comic to gigs. He goes to his house. He interviews his wife, his kids. And what it shows you is a portrait of a brilliant, complex comic, and one whose work has gotten him into trouble plenty of times. Here's a little bit from the documentary. It's toward the beginning. Quite often, I look at my life as a Twilight Zone episode, like those episodes where a guy wakes up and he's in this totally different world, totally different life. I wake up and I go, what are these other clothes hanging here? And what's this weird apartment where the furniture matches? And they go, why, you're married, sir. Gilbert Gottfried, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Ah, thank you. I feel like there are about 10 minutes in this film dedicated specifically uh, to your history of defending your personal life, anything besides your stage character from being seen. Uh, I guess the first question is, why was that? Why, why didn't you want to have a public life besides performing? Well, there's um, there there's one part of the film, and it's called Gilbert. <laughs> um, it's that, and and I I've always th- I always think this like that scene in um, Wizard of Oz, where it's like, don't look at that man behind the curtain. And and that's the way I, I always felt with my life as far as a performer goes. I feel like, oh, I, I don't want them to see that guy behind the curtain. It might kill anything they like about me. Were you worried that, that the real you was disappointing? Uh, yeah. And um, I, I, I mean, it's, it's just like I remember for years... After I I do a set, and sometimes I do a great set, and, you know, I get a lot of laughs and everything, and I'd be scared to go up and, you know, try to talk to women in the bar or something because I thought, I'll, I'll just wind up killing everything I created up there. Did you ever see that episode of the Larry Sanders show where Bobcat Goldthwait is going to take over the show? Uh, no. What happens in this episode is Bob Goldthwaite, who, uh, of course, is was famous as particularly at the time for his kind of screaming and caterwauling on stage, takes over the Larry Sanders show from Larry Sanders, and he, he does it in his real voice. And the executives are like, wait a minute, we hired Bobcat Goldthwaite, the guy who yells in the Police Academy movies. And the tension of this episode is Bob wanting to have his own real-life human being persona and the network wanting his uh, screaming uh, weirdo persona, which, to be fair, is very funny. Uh, me, I I just kind of felt, I always felt safe in character. This movie is like one of the few times you see me like uh, break character. And, and it's funny, I've been doing it so long, either, either one of my characters seems natural to me now. 
What kind of comedy did you do when you started out? You started out as a teenager doing open mics before there, basically before there were comedy clubs. Oh, yeah. I, I was one of those kids. I watched way too much TV and started after a while. I used to draw pictures. I used to think of being a, a cartoonist. And then I started to joke around and like I'd watch these old actors and the old movies they show on TV and I do imitations of them. And then I started getting more and more interested in show business. And uh, my sister, Arlene, um, had a friend who told her, you know, there's some club, and I don't remember the name of it, uh, that you could just go there and write your name down on the list. And when they get to your name, they just call, you know, announce it, and you go up. And you do something. I mean, no money, of course. And I was 15 years old and made the trek from Brooklyn to Manhattan and uh, did it. And I, I, I've i always said that uh, what I had on my side was stupidity. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now I... I it 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 makes me cringe to imagine what was going on in my parents' heads. Uh it it's like uh to say you were gonna make it in show business, that's like saying, Well, I'm gonna be an astronaut. I feel like I talk to a lot of stand ups who tell me that they had a great first set and then they bombed for six months thereafter. But they remembered what that first set was like. And and I often think, like, how many comedians we've lost because they didn't have – their first set wasn't good. <laughs> you know? Oh, yes. Or their second set would have been the good one. Yes. And and that was one of those things I uh, – one of those lessons I learned that sometimes you go up and you'll do a powerhouse set and you think, well, that's it. I'm great. And then, like, the next night you go up and you can't buy a laugh from the crowd. And uh, so that's the that's the first thing. I, I, I think Steve Martin once said, um, it's, it's easy to be great. It's hard to be good. Was it easy for you to look at your own past in the film? Uh, no. Um, it, it's funny how it happened... Um, the the filmmaker Neil Berkeley, he he approached me and said, "I've always dreamt of doing a Gilbert Gottfried documentary." And uh, and I said, "Well, you should set your dreams a lot higher than that." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then he just started following me around, and and me, I I didn't have the guts to say get away from me. So he would follow me. He'd show up at my house, and I'd be walking around my bathrobe, ironing a shirt. And and then he started following me to clubs I was booked at, and it made me very uncomfortable. And I've seen the film about four or five times, and 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 I, I cringe while I'm watching the film because I'm, I'm fine if I'm in a sitcom as... Joe the plumber, 
But uh, me as myself, I, I really, it, it's painful to look at. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Gilbert Gottfried. He's the subject of a new documentary called Gilbert, which is coming out next month. One of the themes in this movie is the way that your relationship with your wife and children has changed you rather unexpectedly as a, you know, well into middle age. How did you meet your wife? Uh, She used to be in the music business where, you know, she was one of those that tried to get songs onto the radio. And uh, somebody had invited me to a Grammy party and that circle in the square, I think it was. And, you know, I I went to that because I knew there'd be free food. And uh, and so I met her there. And now I have, yeah, I have two kids, two young kids. It's very weird. And I think this is with everyone. I don't think it's till you have kids that you have any idea of who your parents were. It's like your parents growing up, they're two people who, they're kind of out of it and they just get in your way and they don't understand anything. And then when you have kids, it's like all of a sudden a light goes on in your head and you go, oh, oh, okay, okay, now I see what they were doing all those years. Trying to protect you? Uh, Yeah, trying to protect you, trying to get you uh, ready for the world. Like, Like I know, you know, my father would get angry with me and... And then, you know, I started to understand it years later. And I think, you know, he just wanted me to be ready for the world. And he used to say to me, uh, he said to me a number of times, he said, you know, your parents aren't going to be with you forever. Which is uh, one of those things that you can't conceive of back then. It's kind of a scary thing to hear from your parents. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's a, a you know a jolt of reality. Did it change the way that you thought about your relationship with him? Uh, I well, it was it was kind of what's becoming at times a very tense relationship. But you know, and and once again, like after he died, I started rethinking everything about him, and and especially when I had kids, and I thought, oh. He was just basically wanted me to be ready for the world. Are you comfortable with the rejection that comes with show business? Uh, after a while, it, you just realize it's part of it, you know. And 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 not only is it is it part of a rejection is always part of it because it it's it's funny. It's like you know. You'll hear stories like uh, of these movies where the lead role, these legendary actors, all wanted it, and only one person could get it. And you're thinking, boy, these are legendary award-winning actors, and they're still being rejected. It's kind of like, I think, uh, well, every every actor wanted to be... uh, Vito Corleone and The Godfather, and 
they were being turned down left and right. I think both Dustin Hoffman and Robert Duvall, among a bunch of other stars, wanted to be Hannibal Lecter. But only one person gets it, and you got to say, oh, you know, sorry, Dustin and Bob. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you. I want to play another clip from the documentary Gilbert, which is about my guest Gilbert Gottfried. Um, and his wife, uh, Dara, is a big part of this. And in this scene, she is going through a sort of memories file in their apartment. And she's talking about uh, what was probably one of the toughest parts of your career, Gilbert, which was um, when you got fired from the comedian's dream job of the century, which was being the voice of the Aflac duck. Oh, wow. These are the tweets that got him fired from Aflac. I guess I, guess I printed them. We took them down. We, we deleted them from Twitter, and I guess I found them somewhere online, and I printed them just to have. Japan is really advanced. They don't go to the beach. The beach comes to them. That's it? Just that No. One. I was talking to my Japanese real estate agent. I said, is there a school in the area? She said, not now, but just wait. What do Japanese Jews like to eat? Hebrew national tsunami. I mean, it's so cheesy, you know. He didn't mean anything wrong. He didn't mean anything bad. It's funny. I was I was watching that part of the documentary and and thinking back uh, to when all of that went down, and it was you know it was genuinely national news. And I wonder how the many years that have passed since all of that went down have changed the way that you've thought about that situation? Well, my my favorite tweet that somebody sent me when that happened was, Affleck fires Gilbert Gottfried after discovering he's a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really it in a nutshell. And, I mean, I remember George Carlin one time said, it's the duty of a comedian to find out where the line is drawn and deliberately cross over it. In the movie, your wife said that when the Aflac stuff went down, you cried over it. Is that true? I I don't know if I cried or if it was... I remember I was... Uh, I I... First of all, I didn't understand the internet at all then. And I thought this was the world. This was the entire world telling me they hated me. And, I mean, one of those things that I started to realize later on is it's that old saying, as long as they're talking about you. Because... When they'd say, a top story tonight, Gilbert Gottfried's career is over. If your career is over, you're not the top story. If your career's over, you could save a building of uh, babies in a burning building, and they won't bother putting you in the paper or mentioning you on TV or putting you on the Internet. 
It's when your name still means something to people. That's when our top story, his career is over. Also, I remember people, I'd go on these shows and the interviewers would act like, you know, this is an important story, like like I'm the dictator of a country or something, or I'm the biggest criminal, and I'm someone who's putting poison in baby food or something. And I remember one in particular, there was this woman who was just, wouldn't crack a smile and was very confrontational about the whole thing. And I gave her an example of a bad taste joke, and I said it, and she, like, turned her face and covered her mouth and was laughing. And I thought, and right then and there is is the whole interview. It's like she knows the joke she heard she's not supposed to laugh at, but she still wants to laugh at. We'll continue my conversation with Gilbert Gottfried in a minute. After a quick break, finally, some good, clean humor from Gilbert about maple syrup, Canada's legendary sweet amber sap. I did not write that sentence. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter, the hiring site that offers a smarter way to find quality candidates fast. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 top job boards with one click. Then, their smart technology notifies the most qualified candidates to apply. In fact, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the comic Gilbert Gottfried. He's the subject of a new documentary about him. It's called Gilbert. It hits theaters next month. I want to play another clip from Gilbert, the documentary about my guest Gilbert Gottfried. And uh, this is a, this is another one with your wife looking through files. I can understand why you would cringe. I can imagine cringing at my wife looking through my history and uh, <laughs> discussing it on screen. Yeah. <laughs> my wife loves me very much, just as yours does you. But uh, I feel like there's nowhere that can go but wrong. Um, but anyway, in this clip, she has pulled out kind of a classic thing, which is like a file of, you know, it's like the love letters file that she's kept from her <laughs> 20 years with you. Let's take a listen. First anniversary, February 3rd, 2008. Dara, warmly thinking of you and hoping this will be a happy celebration of our your anniversary. Happiness always. Go f*** yourself, Gilbert. <laughs> I haven't seen these in a long time. For you on Valentine's Day, Dara, go f*** yourself 500 times. <laughs> this comes straight from the, this comes straight from the heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's me being sentimental. <laughs> Was it hard for you to have the kind of relationship with your wife 
that, and I, Gilbert, I want to be clear that I ask this as someone who is also in a loving marriage who has struggled with this his entire life. So it's not accusatory. But was it hard for you to be in this relationship with your wife where you have to have real intimate emotional engagement and your natural instinct is to jokingly write, go f*** yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it it definitely is a challenge that way because it really is where my personality would always, always leads to a go f*** yourself. And, uh, and once, and there too, if, if she had written on the internet, uh, my husband tells me to go f*** myself, then it would be an outrage through the world of people saying, how could you stay with this beast? Do you get satisfaction out of being sincere? Only if, like, I'm one of those people, if I'm sincere and, and, and it's successful, like, I feel like it's, it's like a good review. I just got. But if you're sincere and it doesn't work. Oh yeah, that that's when it's a problem. It's it's kind of that that double-edged thing. It's like uh you know like you hear a song on the radio uh and you start like you know singing along with it and the other person in the car looks at you and goes, "You like that song?" And you go, oh, oh, no, no, no. I was just making fun of what a bad song it was. And it's like then you're protecting yourself by being uh, acting like, oh, no, I was sarcastic. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the comedian Gilbert Gottfried. You weren't always uh, a dark and brutal truth teller on stage. I'm going to play a clip. This is from about... 25 years ago. I'm probably doing the same bit now. That's the scary part. (laughs) This is... Sorry, this is not even from 25 years ago. This is from 35 years ago. The early 1980s. You... So you are in your late 20s, and you're at the comic comic strip in, in New York, and you're talking about maple syrup. I was in Canada recently. It's like another country. Uh, it's, it's like getting on a plane and going somewhere else. They, they eat maple syrup there. They, uh, they eat maple syrup. They manufacture maple syrup. It's a maple syrup. You get on the plane, they go, well, long flight. I suppose you'll be wanting your maple syrup now. Uh, would you like your maple syrup in jars or bottles? Or uh, how would you like, how do you take your maple syrup? You know what's funny? I just performed a couple of days ago in Canada, and and the club manager said, "Make sure to do the maple syrup bit." <laughs> <laughs> 
So I did it. <laughs> but it's funny because it feels like there is, in a weird way, this there is there is this there is a string that ties together your most clean observational humor with your most insane and and vulgar and profane material. Oh yeah, it's the same. I don't know, same self destructive person, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gilbert, I am so grateful to you for taking all this time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you and meet you, and I so admire your work. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Gilbert Godfrey, the documentary about him, Gilbert, is really compelling. Seriously, make sure to check it out when it hits theaters next month. And here's a tip. Gilbert's sister, Arlene Gottfried, was an incredibly brilliant photographer. Uh, she is actually a sort of secondary subject of the film. If you live in L.A., you can see some of her work for yourself at the Toshin Gallery starting October 18th. It runs through December. Uh, I really can't recommend her work enough. At the very least, Google Arlene Gottfried. Um, it's really amazing stuff. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Maggie Betts. Maggie is a relatively new filmmaker. She's only directed three films. There's The Carrier, a 2010 documentary about an HIV-positive pregnant woman in Africa. She also wrote and directed a short in 2014. Now she's written and directed her first feature film, Novitiate. It's set in 1964 a time when the Catholic Church was at a crossroads. Society was changing around it, attendance was down, and the Church responded to all of that by executing a bunch of reforms, some popular, some not so much. Novitiate talks about that world by zooming in on a group of women training to be nuns. It focuses on the huge changes they experience as the Church changes around them. Suddenly, all their rules change. It's a total change in their lives. The movie is lush, it's passionate, and it talks about faith in a really honest and kind of fascinating way. Here's a little bit from the beginning of the film. One of the movie's storylines follows a young woman named Kathleen, played by Margaret Qualley, as she goes down the path towards becoming a nun. In this scene, she's just told her mom, who's a single mom and an agnostic, played by Julianne Nicholson, that she's joining a convent. Her mom thinks it's crazy. A nun? What are you talking about? That's just crazy, Kathleen. I knew you would understand. You don't have to understand. I it's not that I don't understand. It's just that it's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. You can throw your life away in some convent. But I'm not throwing my life away. I don't know how you can You're even do that. You're absolutely throwing, throwing your life away. Well, I don't get it. Do you think I wanted this? Do you think I wanted to be a single mother? But it's not about that. It has then, nothing to do with then you. Then what is it? I'm in love, Mom. You're in love with who? What? God? Oh, my God, that's crazy. That is crazy. That doesn't even make sense in love with God. I don't know how to explain this, but I was called, and I'm going to become a nun, and there's really nothing that you can say that's going to make me change my mind. Maggie Betts, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for that. Are you religious yourself? I'm not. I didn't grow up with religion as a strong part of my background, but I was always quite fascinated by it, and particularly because my mother 
grew up very religious, and it's something that she sort of gave up or put to the side uh, because of our family wasn't going to be church going. And um, I was always quite touched by like the endurance of her faith, and and quite fascinated to sort of like examine what it is that she felt for God and things like that. So it's part of the part of the. Um, effort behind the movie. Were there other folks who were church going in your family, like your your mom's parents or anything like that? Yeah, my mom grew up. My mom grew up heavily church going. She was Baptist. She is Baptist, and her entire family. She's a very big family. She has thirteen brothers and sisters, and so all of my aunts and uncles. The church was was their source of community, their source of strength. Like, it's a huge thing. You know, we would go on Mother's Day for my mom. We would go on, um, sometimes on Easter, sometimes Mass for Christmas. Oftentimes when my dad was out of town and my mom would be alone, we grew up in New York in the city for the weekend, she would ask me if I would take her to church, escort her to church, and so I'd take her to Riverside Church because she lives on the Upper West Side. Um more as like something to do with her that I knew would make her happy. So as somebody who went to uh, an interdenominational church occasionally as a kid and, you know, maybe went to Baptist church with relatives sometimes, how did you end up becoming interested in the Vatican II? It, it was a series of, it was totally by accident and it was a kind of domino series of of one thing leading me to the next. But um, years and years ago, I had sort of accidentally picked up a biography of Mother Teresa, who I knew little or nothing about. Um, It was just like a book I picked up in an airport. Actually, it was called Come Be My Light. And it consisted of all these letters that she wrote during her life that were just so consumed with her love relationship with God and describing him as her husband, like a literal husband, not a symbolic husband. And the ups and downs and the volatility and the romantic extremes of this relationship. So that was really sort of fascinating to me because I didn't know nuns were married to God. And I didn't know that they were, that the marriage was literal as opposed to symbolic. And I didn't know that they were experiencing levels of emotion about their relationships on par with any like sort of great, profound, all-consuming love relationship that I've seen between two human beings or have experienced myself. So that led me to sort of start uh, reading a lot of ex-nun memoirs, not thinking of making a movie, but just out of a curiosity of like who these women once were. And as you sort of like dig into the small but really rich canon of memoirs of former nuns, um, they're almost entirely focused on two subject matters, which is their time period and their vitiate and the impact of Vatican II. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't that I went looking for I, looking for uh, s- stories about Vatican II. I started with the subject of women being in love with God, and um, all of the material I found then led to Vatican II. Can you explain for? folks who aren't Catholic or don't know their modern American history or modern world history, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, what the impact, what, roughly what the Vatican II was and, and particularly what its impact was on 
nuns. Sure, absolutely. So um, between the years of 1962 and 1965, and that's notable because it's like in 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 the in this moment of great change in the 1960s, the Pope at that time was a man named Pope John the Twenty Third, and uh, for a variety of reasons, kind of like sweeping the cobwebs up trying to kind of like modernize and be in step with the times, at the same time trying to go back to the original teachings and liturgy of Catholicism. He initiated something called Vatican II a century before it had been Vatican I. By and large, Vatican II was a very good thing. It was a series of reforms that came out of this three-year conference. And the reforms were things that made the church more accessible. For example, one of the most cited ones is that previously the liturgy and the service would be in Latin and the priest would have his back turned, which is obviously like sort of super alienating and separating. The congregation felt distanced. They didn't understand what the guy was saying and he wasn't even looking at them. On top of that, uh, there was an acknowledgement of other faiths, particularly Judaism, that that sort of like they have a right to believe what they believe too. But one thing that happened is that they didn't invite sort of nuns into the conference, and nuns were a huge part of the church. And they made or suggested reforms for them that were sort of in step with this idea of progress, but didn't ask them. So some of the reforms they made for them, the whole idea was for them to get out into the world, to not be like locked in the confines of convents. Get out into the world, ladies. Spread the word. Live your lives uh, they didn't have to wear the habits anymore, which is which was hugely shocking to nuns. It, it's you know it's like as if you told guys in the army like you have to wear a uniform anymore, but that's their identity, that's their status, and then also that their status with God was reduced to the same thing as a regular practicing Catholic. In essence, I think what they meant was to sort of keep that women should go out and live their lives. But my interpretation is sort of like such entrenched patriarchal sexism in making a decision like that for a group of people that haven't been invited into the conversation about the decision. And so as a result, 90,000 nuns exited from their convents. Many of them formed like very sort of feminist groups within the church that have been sparring with the Vatican for women's rights within the church ever since, and that was in the 1960s. What was the what was the practical impact on nuns who had been living a life that had been prescribed a, a hundred years previous and largely centuries before that in in a convent, wearing a special outfit, punishing themselves in certain ways? Like, mm-hmm. how did their lives change? Well, I mean, it's really interesting. A lot of the memoirs I wrote, I, re- I wrote, a lot of the memoirs I read covered the story that I wrote, meaning like what with the experience of women being inside a convent, learning about Vatican II, and that it ends there, them being sort of in shock and the, and with the sort of information that 90,000 women left. But a lot of the memoirs I read had two parts. And the second half was these women attempting to assimilate, to go out into the world. And there are many nuns I met who were young and they married or found jobs or or just sort of like... It was a sort of girl-interrupted moment when they were in their training or in their time period of a nun, and then their lives continued from there. But a lot of women, you know, maybe who were, who were older and had been in there like 15, 20, 30, 40 years, 
had no tools to it's like coming out of jail they don't know you know they they don't know how to use money they don't know how to get an apartment and then those who stayed the institution has now changed the parameters of this relationship how do you you but it's a very intimate relationship between these women and god how do they figure that out for themselves so you know it's just super complicated I want to play uh, another clip from Novitiate. And um, in this scene, the the convent has gotten the orders from the archdiocese to implement the reforms of Vatican II. Um, And one of the changes is that they will be getting rid of some of the extreme physical penance acts. And the Reverend Mother has basically been ignoring the orders. And so in this scene, the, the archbishop comes to town and sits down to tea with the Reverend Mother. Uh, why don't you tell me what exactly you have the most difficulty with? Just lay it all out for me. I have no difficulty. I just happen to disagree with it, all of it. Not to mention, it's a slap in the face that the sisters weren't given any voice in the matter. You honestly expected them to have their own voice, the sisters. We are a part of this church, too. Marie, Marie, that's not how it works. I don't think you really understand what this will do to us. If we were to truly embrace all these changes, it will ruin the very institution of Catholic nuns as well. Are you still encouraging all of your novitiates and postulants to perform extreme acts of penance on themselves. All that old medieval stuff, because that's got to stop. Never asked my girls to do anything for God that I haven't done myself. Like I said, got to stop. Have you ever felt as passionately about anything as these women who are becoming nuns feel about their relationship with God? Yeah, my my first love relationships, where you're just all in and you just are so enamored and overwhelmed and you've just never experienced it before and you've never felt it before. And then kind of, I guess, part of the question of the movie has to do with, like, the notion of young women in love and, like, how much of it is a projection, you know, like... In my situation, I could look at my first boyfriend, and i he was God to me. He was everything. He, he meant everything to me. And I hope he's not listening to this, but looking back, I, I, he was kind of a loser. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like <laughs> I can't even believe that I would have spent five minutes on this guy. But when you're, you know, so it's kind of like I could say, like, if you go on the assumption that God is not in a day-to-day relationship with these young women— then it's all a self-generated relationship and you could be like oh are they crazy are they just imagining but i i can't really i can't really find a, a place where i could totally differentiate what they're doing from what i did with my first love relationship that said that's what it's like to be a young passionate girl that just gets falls head over heels in love for the first time the women who had been there 30 40 50 years who were day in and day out struggling with their relationship with God as Mother Teresa had that's something I think more profound we'll have more with Maggie Betts after a break it turns out she grew up with the Bushes like her dad is good friends with George W. Bush she was roommates with his daughter Barbara so I had to ask what is that like 
Stay tuned. Spolzai for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith from NPR's Planet Money podcast, a business and economics podcast for everyone, even if you don't think you like business and economics. Every week, we find stories that help make the world make a little more sense. Like, why is milk in the back of the store? How did credit reports get started? Or where does North Korea get its money? Listen to Planet Money on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my interview with Maggie Betts in just a minute. But first, got a new sister show to Bullseye in the MaximumFun.org podcast network. It's called Heat Rocks. On Heat Rocks, the writer and scholar Oliver Wang and the music supervisor Morgan Rhodes invite a special guest to talk about an album that changed their world, like a genuine classic from R&B, soul, hip-hop, jazz. There's a great episode with the very funny MC Fonte from Little Brother and also from The Foreign Exchange. Uh, We've got Jay Smooth coming up, Dame Funk, Shea Serrano, who was just on Bullseye, is coming up on the show. It is a beautiful to listen to and genuinely insightful show. I, I swear, Oliver and Morgan know more about music. It is astonishing, the depth of their knowledge. And these guests are amazing, too. Do us a favor. Pull out your phone, your MacBook, whatever. Open up your favorite podcasting app. Give Heat Rocks a listen. You're not going to regret it. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the film director, Maggie Betts. She has a new film. It's called Novitiate. How do you make a movie about nuns in a convent? Like, what are the practical considerations of... You mean on, like, a filmmaking level? Like, technical? Yeah, I mean, like, even how do you... You know, everybody wears... Everyone's wearing black. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, every single person. So how how do you even approach challenges? Like, how do you make sure people's faces aren't don't look like they're floating around? Yeah, no, it, exposure was it, how we shot it and the lighting and how you expose without too much contrast was a huge thing. I mean, it's like you have this black and white. You have these very, these two primary colors. But I mean, from a like, for for a period piece based in the 60s, I can't tell you the great joy of having only one costume. That's incredible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And one location that doesn't involve, like, picture cars and other stuff like that. So in that sense, like, it was like, you know, my costume director, like, uh, costume designer, like, dressed them once and just sat back and, like, ate an apple with her feet on a chair for the rest of That's not true at all. She worked her butt off. But I'm just saying, like, she didn't have to come up with a a period look. I don't think I realized how much of these women, at least as you've portrayed them in the film's lives, are defined by a lack of physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like I knew about, I knew that they weren't having romance or sex, mm-hmm. but I was shocked that they weren't, that they couldn't hug each other touch and hug and yeah i remember reading this one section in a memoir where this woman was describing how unbelievably starved for any type of physical contact the slightest like anything and they had some kind of feast day or some ceremony that came up every year 
like literally maybe once a year, twice a year or something, where as a part of the ritual, one of the older nuns would kiss each young woman on the forehead. Maybe I can't remember exactly what, what it was connected to, but this girl described desperately longing and waiting for that day because she just needed somebody to touch her so badly. And I, I just found it, like, incredibly... That is incredibly moving. Even the way that they walk, um, which is called custody of the eyes, where you keep your eyes down as opposed to looking upward and making eye contact either with another person or with a flower or with the beauty of a landscape or something, is supposed to not let anything in that, that can kind of, like... Even even something like eye contact is is too much person to person interaction. It's t- it's taking you away from your meditation on God. One of the interesting things to me about the way that you tell the story is that movies about the Catholic Church tend to either be about the glory of God, or especially more recently, a a kind of grand expose, mm-hmm. which I think is an important story to be told, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that is, a, you know, that's a, that's a huge part of our world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the way that you've told this story, while there is this motivating context of the Vatican II, you're ultimately trying to represent something that is much more personal and much less a commentary about the institution. Yeah, I, I think what I was really mostly interested in, and this is way, much, much broader than Catholicism or than this particular moment between 1962 and 1965 or the nuns, was the idea of like, and it could be, it doesn't necessarily have to be religious. You have this incredibly intimate relationship. Like in this situation, they're just pursuing, they're going after the deepest, deepest level of intimacy in the form that comes in the form of relationship with God, for example. And then you have this enormous institution that's sole purpose is to regulate every detail of the relationship. And the conflict of that is what's really interesting to me. And you can and you can see that and you could apply that to a lot of different things in the world. But it's like you could apply it to the notion of marriage or something like that. But it's like you could apply it to gay marriage. You know what I mean? Like it's like the most intimate relationship and then you have these institutions that are like this is what you're allowed to do and this is how you make this is how you get the person to love you back and this and so I just found that generally the notion of a novitiate the the training program is teaching you how to love and love should be the most private personal instinctual thing inside us as human beings and so I was like this school this program that was set up within these convents is trying to regulate and control and also harping on your worst insecurities when you're in love. And that was what was, that was the thing for me. I have an odd question to ask you, which is that you are or were housemates with uh, Barbara Bush, the younger, the daughter of uh, the uh, the daughter of George W. Bush and Laura Bush. Mm-hmm. Your mm-hmm. father uh, uh, was or is pals with George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. What is it like when someone you know as a as a h- actual human being mm-hmm. becomes president? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like a president is such a weird, abstract thing, at least to me. Yeah, I that I uh, it's like, wow, that happened. (laughs) (laughs) It's like people, you know, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, okay. I mean, I I don't, (laughs) it's 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 not something I would really know how to describe. It's just like, oh, that happened. It's and it's complicated, but. Yeah, it's it's uh I don't, you know, I don't I don't know if my dad his relationship with George Bush goes back to them being at Yale together. And so I don't know if they were like one of us is going to be president one day, but you know um yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to answer that. I mean, I I thought about your first film which was a narrative documentary about uh uh, an expecting mother with HIV mm-hmm. in Africa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I I wondered when I when I was thinking about it, you know this you know it's a subject that grew out of um, you doing service in Africa, mm-hmm. and I wonder if it was like you know it, it, in a way like it's a way of doing art as an act of service. That mm-hmm. is part of giving yourself permission to do art. It's incredibly sort of psychologically astute for me personally in that movie at that time in life. It was like you have a lot of guilt about what you're allowed to do in the world and what you're not allowed to do in the world. And I desperately wanted to make movies, but I didn't know if I was quote unquote allowed to do that for various reasons of. Maybe I'm too privileged and I haven't struggled enough, and also maybe because I'm a woman and at that time it was a... But so making an issue film about an issue which I don't want to diminish, like I take very seriously to this day, and I and I, it's still something that's deeply important to me. The issue is prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV, so protecting mothers who are HIV positive, protecting their children from being born with HIV, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, where the pandemic is like the most raging, but um, yeah, I mean there is something about what what's permissible, what, you know, and it was like like well, I guess in this sense, I never felt comfortable just like telling like what a lot of sort of indie filmmakers do and to great effect I'm not like the coming of age like my life that sort of like personal narrative like thing like it had to be something that 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 had sort of some kind of socially conscious and I'm still like that aspect to it um and maybe there's something in that in the sense that it's like because the subject matter is more important to you that's what makes it okay for you to want to do it kind of thing well maggie i I really appreciate you uh taking the time to come and be on bullseye i really so appreciate you enjoyed it yeah enjoyed it a great deal and thank you so much for having me maggie betts her film novitiate hits theaters october 27th we'll have a link to the trailer on our website just go to the bullseye page at maximumfun.org We're getting towards the end of another episode of Bullseye, but first, a recommendation from me. 
It's called The Outshot. Do you remember when George Clooney was a failed movie star? I mean, in 1996, that haircut was everything. But Batman and Robin was a genuine disaster. It looked like it might not happen for our man. But then, in 1998, came a movie called Out of Sight. It was the same deal for the director, Steven Soderbergh, too. He was like a precocious genius. He basically invented 90s indie movies with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which came out in 1989. And then he sort of laid a few eggs in a row, and it looked like it might have been a fluke. Interesting, but not exactly successful. And then Soderbergh met Clooney, and I guess Soderbergh had like an Elmore Leonard book in his hand, and basically one of the best crime movies of the last 30 years happened. First thing we do, we get to Detroit, we find Glenn, and we find a window to throw him out of. I was thinking, if I was Glenn and I was up there to take down the river, where would I go? Except that if you were Glenn, you wouldn't be thinking. Here's the setup. Clooney is a bank robber. If I was going to describe him, I guess I would go with, like, Clooney-ish or Clooney-esque. Again, this is the movie that made George Clooney George Clooney. So anyway, he's in jail. But his buddy, Ving Rhames, gets him out. The only problem is, when Clooney pops out of the tunnel on the other side of the wall, there's Jennifer Lopez standing in the mud with a shotgun. She was just hanging out in the prison parking lot, and it turns out she's a federal agent. Clooney grabs her. They end up stuffed into Ving Rhames' trunk. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of this, but I'm not 100% sure that audio can convey this scene. I mean, Clooney just crawled out of a hole. He's covered in mud. Lopez is mad. We can only even see their conversation because Clooney's got a little flashlight and the brake lights are turning on and off. And we're pretty sure that J-Lo still has a gun on her somewhere. And the two of them, they just met, they're stuffed in this trunk, and it is maybe the hottest fully clothed movie scene I've ever seen. You, know, you don't seem all that scared. Of course I am. You don't act like it. What do you want me to do, scream? I didn't help much anyway. No, I'm just going to sit here, take it easy, and wait for you to screw up. From there, it's sort of a weird heist movie. Lopez gets away, so she's chasing them. So's her dumb federal agent boyfriend, Michael Keaton. Clooney and Rames and their dopey friend Steve Zahn are trying to steal some diamonds from a rich guy they did time with. That's Albert Brooks. The movie's a style exercise. I mean, it seems like Soderbergh loves that kind of stuff, experimenting with aesthetics. But thanks to a great story, great characters from that Elmore Leonard novel, some of the best actors in the business, Out of Sight is never even a tiny bit vapid. It's just like everyone is so human, so rich, so funny. They don't even need the guns of the crime. Honestly, Out of Sight would work as a weird family sitcom. I mean, Albert Brooks, who plays the rich guy, Albert Brooks is like seventh on the call sheet on this thing. And there's Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, too. Early career Don Cheadle. Crazy, murderous Don Cheadle. That's your little fishies for you. Oh, good. Not so fast. See, starting out, there's going to be an across-the-board cost-of-living increase, you know what I mean? What? You know, when I got put in here a year ago on credit card fraud, I didn't really get no props for that, you know? But ever since I shanked that loudmouth in the yard the other day, <laughs> it's like my Dun & Broad Street around this to shot way the up, man. Actually, it's uh, Dun & Brad Street. That's the, um... well, I've, I've heard it both ways. And at one point, 
somebody messes with J-Lo and she just smacks the crap out of him with one of those telescoping batons. Oh, my God. It's so amazing. You're not my type. <laughs> no, that don't mean nothing to me. I let the monster out. You're going to do what it wants. I got to go, Kenneth. Maybe we'll see each other again mm, sometime. No, 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 no. We're going to tussle first. Damn it! wanted to tussle we tussled there are a thousand moving parts in this movie flashbacks split screens Catherine keener doing a southern accent a gay luis guzman and there's jennifer lopez hottest chick in the game and george clooney coolest man on earth and a really gorgeous version of will they won't they it's like seeing someone for the first time like you could be passing on the street and and you look at each other, and for a few seconds, there's this kind of a, a recognition. Like you both know something. The next moment, the person is gone, and and it's too late to do anything about it. And you always remember it because it was there, and you let it go. And you think to yourself, "What if I had stopped? What if I had said something? What if? What if?" It may only happen a few times in your life. Home once. Out of Sight isn't brutal, like the Tarantino knockoffs that were big back then. And it's not glib. It isn't goofy or winky like the Oceans movies. It's just vivid, elegant, cool, funny, vibrant. It's like a great movie or, or a great movie star. Actually, you know what? I know how to describe it. It's Clooney-esque. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters. Overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, the weather has been gorgeous this week in Los Angeles. A perfect time to stroll around the park. Maybe get yourself a paleta. We're also recording the show this week in my closet. In fact, I'm standing in my closet right now. Shout out to my closet. This show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, standing immediately outside my closet. He has help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien this week. Our production fellow here at MaximumFun.org is Khalid Moalin. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher at MaxFun. All our interstitial music is given to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music comes from The Go Team. They've got a new record coming out on their label, Memphis Industries. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Hopefully we'll have them on the show. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out that Bullseye page on Facebook. Got a bunch more info about the show there. We've got sneak peeks to upcoming interviews and lots of useful information that we've found on the Internet. You can also find all the past Bullseye shows in addition to uh, on your podcasting software. You can find them on YouTube. We've got a YouTube channel, and we post all our interviews there. So if you want to listen to one again or catch part that you missed or share it with somebody, you can find them there. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 